It's a blessing to be here this year at camp, not able to come every year. It's uh, quite a distance for us to travel. Um, I was not able to share greetings this morning um, in the assembly, so I share them with you now. Greetings from our congregation in Clovis. And as we are about to uh, begin this this evening, excuse me, worship service, uh, before we actually open God's word, let's first bow our hearts in prayer. Our loving God and faithful Father in heaven, this assembly pauses at this time to turn our hearts to thee. Father, as we would seek the leading, the moving, the stirring of thy spirit in our midst, through the sharing of thy word. Father, it really makes no difference who stands up here. The difference will be found in the presence and the moving of thy spirit in thy Father's hand of blessing on us now. Lord, we pray for these things and thank thee for the confidence that as we seek those things that please thee, we have them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I think about camp and the opportunity to have a theme and time to work with that theme, I personally anticipate blessings and a lot of time spent together with the people of God, the children of God, and those who seek to be God's children. And I count it such a blessing to be able to to be among believers like this. Many years ago, when visiting the Woodcliffe Lake Church in New Jersey on a Sunday morning for a Bible study, it has had this realization that when we sit together to look at God's Word and consider it together, in a sense, it's like the Lord gives us access into the mind of Christ himself. As we sit around together with those of like precious faith and have the opportunity to beseech God and for his blessings and, 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 and to consider his word together. I imagine like every brother who is called upon to serve, my mind also, um, a lot of scriptures went through my mind as I prayerfully considered what the Lord would have us to share together tonight. And I believe with the Lord's help, I'm, I'm led that we would go to begin this evening, go to Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 10. Matthew chapter 10. Perhaps we can begin reading with verse number 16. Matthew 10, 16. 
Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But we, but we bear, but we wear, excuse me, of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over these cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I'd like to stop at this point with that verse. Today, I think the focus of the lessons, the emphasis has been on casting out fear. And so I'm sure all of us, as we went through the lessons today, discussed a bit about fear, what it is, maybe how to qualify it, and its effects. And as I thought about the theme, perfect love casteth out fear. I thought about the part of casting, casting out fear. When we think about casting out fear, what we're really talking about is discarding something, getting rid of it, maybe throwing it away. But we're doing something to separate ourselves from this fear to put distance between it and us, casting. And as I prayerfully considered what that might mean, the Lord reminded me of an experience I made in my life many years ago. 
came home one day from work. And uh, there was a, a garbage bag sitting by the front door. So I dutifully picked up that garbage bag, took it out to the trash barrels, got rid of it. Evening went on. Following day, had a quite a quite a, a busy day scheduled at work. We were actually feeding a lot of our trade partners that day, and uh, I happened to be involved in a lot of that. Mid morning comes, I got this phone call. Mita's calling me, my wife. And I'm thinking of all these things that I need to get done because I have just a very short period of time before we're going to pull off this event where we feed all these people. And she says to me, um, did you see that white bag by the door yesterday? I says, yep, threw it away. She says, no, you did not. Says, yeah, threw it away. Now, this little event that we had at work, we had a lot of folks coming in. My mind was overwhelmed with uh, what, what I needed to get done to kind of have it ready on time. And you know what it's like when you're at work and you're trying to process thoughts very fast and you're trying to work through these things very quickly. And um, she says, there were fencing jackets inside that bag. Fencing is, um, I guess, for those of you who might know more about it than I do, but, you know, you kind of have these uh, swords, whatever they are, and you, it's, it's, it's a sport. You have to have a jacket you put on to protect yourself from your opponent as you engage in fencing. Mita did a lot of um, alterations. I came home, like a good husband should, saw that bag of garbage by the front door, I cast it out. That was kind of, kind of one of those mind-clearing moments when I thought, oh. You know, when we cast things away, we have to be very careful of what we're throwing away, don't we? And there are times in our lives when we, when we kind of focus on casting things away. Maybe when we move. You ever, have you ever moved before? You're going from one house to the next, one dwelling place to the next, maybe an apartment, whatever. And you kind of go through your belongings and you begin to purge because you're moving on. And we don't want to take things with us that we don't really need. And we now have a reason to purge them. Casting things away. Now, we are here this weekend to cast away, to understand how the Lord might work in our hearts and lives individually, perhaps as families, in our congregations, to cast off things that are unprofitable for our walk with the Lord. We have to be careful and discerning when we cast things away. We must be sober when we make these decisions of what will go and what will stay.
I had a hard time trying to find those fencing jackets. Long story short, I went to the county dump, was able to meet the, 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 the garbage truck that was coming. I thought to myself, okay, it's a white garbage bag. I found out some things. One of the things I found out was that they put about, they pack about 500 houses worth of garbage into one truck. And the man, the truck driver says, yeah, your house is right about here on the side of the truck. Okay. A few people up there thought they're going to help me out. Shovels and a rake and things of that nature. Not sure what they thought about me. I know I needed to find those, ba- those, those, those jackets. He opens the door. There's this mountain of white garbage bags coming at me. Middle of summertime, hot. We get 100 degrees all the time. Many times far beyond 100 degrees, much hotter. I put all that stuff out of my mind. I had to find the fencing jackets. Well, after I opened up about, I don't know, maybe 20 of them, I'll let your mind kind of imagine what you find in garbage. Suddenly, with all the slime and whatever was coming out of those things, my perspective changed. My desire changed. I made a decision. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Knowing that on the other end of this conversation, my poor wife was about having a heart attack. I said, we'll pay. She knew what they cost. I did not. A fencing jacket. Casting out fear. Now, clearly, the intent this weekend is to cast out fears that hinder. This morning, we understood that there are fears that help. And there are fears that hinder. You know, I think about the fear of the Lord. Maybe there's fear of fire. There are healthy fears that help us. But there are those fears, and and, and for those fears that help us, we, we can't afford to get rid of them. You know, the Bible says many things about the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The Bible says that in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Solomon said a few things about the fear of the Lord. He also said the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. In the passage we read in Matthew, As the Lord was speaking to his apostles, the 12 apostles, as he was sending them out in this particular passage, and he was prepping them for the experiences that they would make as they would take the gospel far and wide. He told them the environment that they would would be operating in, 
sending them forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. He told them what they could expect to be delivered up to the councils, to be whipped, to be brought to places, and the Lord would give them a testimony to speak against those who oppose the Lord Jesus. And the reactions of those who heard the gospel would be deadly. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And the Bible says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. What a sobering message. And the Lord said, Fear them not. I'm not sure if they really realized how important this was. I want to believe that they were learning. They were disciples now. They were walking with the Master. Jesus had not yet died upon the cross. And he says, Rather than fear them, what I tell you in darkness, speak in light. What you hear in the ear, preach upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. You know, that was to be, as much as it was instructive to them, would also wind up being a bit of a, a guideline. And I think ultimately, in the end, even a comfort in their service to the Lord. The fear of God. Disciples need to fear Jesus. Not only disciples need to fear Jesus, but I think of uh, a couple of passages here. Uh, we can read this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We think about the Philippian church. This epistle was written, authored by Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. They were sanctified. They were forgiven. They were born again. And the message was to keep that fear. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because the Lord somehow shorted them? Not hardly. But what God had given in his grace, there was some responsibility in the part of the sanctified and saved to cherish and to nourish and to have respect unto God's gifts. You know, the apostle said this. Uh, I should say the writer of Hebrews in 4.15, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Was the apostle being an alarmist? Was he just throwing up his hands and saying, Be careful. Not hardly. 
Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. I, I didn't really realize until I read that a little bit closer this weekend that God gives us grace to fear him. We must be discerning in what we cast away. You know, even the church leaders had fears, right? The apostle, motivated by the Holy Spirit, says this, But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his, simplic- through his subtlety, excuse me, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, this fear wasn't a crippling fear. It did not paralyze the apostle. Rather, it was motivational. And so as we think about these things, you know, God forbid that we cast away healthy fears. It didn't take me that long to make the decision that it was too hot and somehow I'm going to deal with the cost of these jackets. I didn't find those jackets again. I don't think anybody ever will. I think once the fear of God is lost, it is so difficult to bring that back again. Let's be discerning. And I am persuaded that that's our intent. The fear of 1 John chapter 4.18. You know, this is interesting to me. This is the only verse... In this entire epistle, first epistle, that even mentions fear. One verse. Just one. The greater context of this particular epistle probably has an overwhelming emphasis on fellowship. Fellowship with God. And there is a lot to be said, and a lot is said, about fellowship what it is. How is it achieved? How is it practiced? What does it accomplish? How can it be measured? Can it be tested? One verse in the greater context of this message of fellowship. Why is this verse here? Why did the Spirit of God deem it necessary to kind of insert one verse that speaks about fear within this message of fellowship? You know, if if we wanted to be crass about it, I guess, we could almost look at this and say, well, this is hardly a footnote in the greater scope of the message. 
Yet we have a theme and a whole, a whole week, God willing, lined out to consider the verse. As I look at this particular epistle, 1 John chapter 1 seems to be come across as an introduction to the gospel. It's like introductory in nature if you read the chapter for what it says. The second chapter seems to, to, to be more directive, like it's instructive. It's written to the church, to the children of God, my little children. These things write I unto you. Chapter 3 kind of begins almost as a, as a spontaneous reflection coming from the heart of the apostle, one who was, in a sense, almost gained access into the bowels of Jesus Christ. And from that perspective inside, he adores the Father. And he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And, 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 and throughout um, this, this, this epistle, we see almost conditions are sort of written into the epistle by which we can, we can affirm that we have fellowship with the Father. It's not nebulous. It's not general. It's specific. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is cautionary. It begins that way. Sort of like an exhortation. Chapter 5 is maybe more confirming. Didn't get this out of a book. It's just as I, as I prayerfully considered. Because to me, the context was important of the epistle. In verse 18, sort of finds itself in what I see as a listing of qualifications of really what is the love of God and what does it accomplish? I find verses 17 and 18 to be very um, significant. I wasn't here last night for, for the beginning of Brother Scott's message, so um, I apologize if I'm rereading this. I think uh, there may be some overlap in what is being read here. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. This verse seems to look to the future. We would say to ourselves, the apostle John, wasn't he an apostle? Had he not already demonstrated faith toward God and repentance toward Jesus Christ? And if he, in fact, was just, justified already, as it says in Romans 5.1, what judgment does he refer to? Why should he be concerned with judgment? Why should the Spirit of God motivate him in this fashion? Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Were there those who were judging him? Well, I'm sure there were. The Apostle Paul and the Apostles dealt with that. Is this what he was referring to? When the naysayers and those who are in denial refuse the message? I don't think so. 
The message seems to say that herein is our love made perfect or complete that that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That is to say, when the love of God has its complete work in our lives and his work has been completed in our hearts and lives, any fear of condemnation is replaced by the assurance of salvation. And this assurance, this boldness, will be completed forever on the great white throne judgment day. You know, the word perfect in verse 17, I had to look it up. It does mean complete. But I find it noteworthy that the word perfect in verse 18 changes just a little bit. I didn't know that. What verse 18 says is there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Well, it still carries the meaning of completeness of love, but it adds something. It includes the meaning of laboring or working. There is no fear in love, but a complete working, laboring love casteth out fear. And I think it's very appropriate we have this verse here this weekend. Because you and I are not living in the future. Life is not over yet. The church is still here. The resurrection has yet to come. And the church still labors. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. I think about the Apostle John. You know, if if I'm not mistaken, he was one apostle who was not martyred. They tried. They dipped him in a vat of boiling oil. That's what history says. They failed. He came out alive and died a natural death. And he said, there is no fear in love. I can't understand that from his perspective, I guess, of the experience he's made, because I've not made that experience, being dipped in a vat of oil. But the message seems to say that a maturing, laboring, complete love will replace fear. But why the fear? Why is it in this epistle? You know, as we look at the epistle, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit motivated the apostle to write about the Antichrist. Little children, as it says in 2.18, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they, are not, that they were not all of us. But we have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie, that, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist. He that denieth the Father and... Excuse me, he... Let me reread that. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. It seems that in John's time, already, the spirit or the workings of the Antichrist were in play. We also read in chapter 4 of this epistle where it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's a benchmark. That's a reference point. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is, is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, past tense, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I think that's why this verse was in, or this verse is actually included in the epistle. Because the work of the Antichrist was in full bloom already in John's day. Laboring to deny Jesus Christ. And for the longest time, I really struggled with verse 2, where it says, And every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. I struggled with that verse. Anybody can say that. Anybody, if that's an acid test, I struggled with it. And then I came to understand, well, wait a minute, that, that word confess really means something more than just what it actually says right there. It means to covenant with. It means to agree with. It means to assent I thought, ah, okay. Every spirit that will covenant, that will agree, that will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And if we accept Jesus Christ, we must accept his word his teachings, and his covenant. Okay. That began to give me more clarity. And then when I went to Romans 10, 9 and 10, and I could read that passage that speaks about confessing with the mouth the Lord Jesus, and I'm not going to read it now for sake of time, 
gave me more clarity. Confessing. To covenant with. To accept. To acknowledge. To embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message that he brought is to confess Christ. John lived in a time when that was challenged. That's why he was put in oil. And the, the apostles were martyred. That's how strong the denial was. And what we begin to read in verse 7 of chapter 4, we see no panic here. This is, a, this is an exhortation of conviction. John knows that there are those who want his head. And with the peace of God, and in the spirit of God, and with the assurance of God, he begins to give these qualifications of what the love of God is all about. And included in that list is perfect love, casteth out fear. Was he being defiant? No. He had no one to defy. He was in fellowship with God. That's what it was all about. And that gave him the power and the assurance and the courage to cast out the fear. And I'm sure the Spirit of God knew that in our day, we would need the same. So we must be discerning in what we cast out. But we must cast out fears that hinder. The Bible says, and I think one of the things that we look to do with the, God, with, with, with the Lord's help this, week, this particular week is to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And one of the good works that we're looking to, to provoke each other unto, I think, this week is to cast out fears that hinder I've always appreciated in my life hearing testimonies from believers of experiences that they've made and how the Lord worked in their lives. There's always lessons to be learned. Let me share with you an experience that I heard, not my own. And if you heard it before, I apologize. But the Lord reminded me of it, and so I'll share it. Many years ago, I don't know if it was 60 or what it was, 67 years ago. There was a believing family living on a farm, <clears throat> farmers. And they had livestock. That's how they made their living. Time had come um, to take the, uh, the livestock to the market. 
And uh, as they were waiting for that weekend to come about, I guess, to travel, um, the family on a weekend was traveling to one of the neighboring, one of our churches, congregations. Um, I don't know exactly what the, what the event was, but they left the house. At home, they left their daughter, who was a believer, farm girl. Well, I guess on a farm, you have to work from sunup to sundown. So when the sun was about down, she came in. And I guess after she got ready to go to bed, she walked in her bedroom to her bed. And there, um, sticking out at the end of her bed, was um, a pair of shoes, boots. Someone was in a room under her bed, hiding. It was dark. It was night. No one was around. What was she to do? Where was she to go? Go back outside? Maybe there's somebody else out there. What do you think she did? She walked into her bedroom to her dresser. Grabbed a Bible. Climbed up on top of her bed. I don't know what was going through her mind and her heart. Was she afraid? Did she have some fears to deal with? I think she did. I'm not sure what went through her heart and mind, but she opened up the Bible. And as the account was told by the sister who has now passed away, Jeremiah chapter 1 opened up. The sister says she began to read from that chapter in a voice that was uncommonly loud and deliberate. And when she got through the first chapter, she went to the second chapter. And wouldn't you know it, she read the book to whoever was underneath the bed. Fifty-two chapters. And the sister said when she was done, she hadn't prayed yet. She put the Bible away, went to the side of her bed, got down on her knees with nothing but the bedding between her and the man and begin to pray out loud. Same type of voice. When she was done, she crawled into bed, covered herself. After a minute or so, there was some shuffling under the bed. Man stands up. I imagine he must look like a giant to her. And he began to explain to her who he was, part of a group, gang of thieves. They've been keeping an eye on the farm. They knew the livestock were ready to go to the market. They were going to help them out and steal them. He says, things have changed. He says, by the way, my job, I'm here to kill you if you were to give us any problems. 
But we won't take anything now. We're going to go. But I need one thing. That book you're reading from. I need the book. She gave him the Bible. He left. The rest of the story is six months later, or whatever it was, I don't know. There's a knock at the door. The minister from the neighboring village came by with some stranger holding a Bible. He was repenting, came back to apologize. How did she cast out fear? Did she put her faith in action? She went to the word of God. That's what she did. And she turned to the Lord in prayer. You know, I did hear Brother Scott refer to uh, Jude last night as he read the verse, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And the other verse that comes to my mind um, this evening is found in... First Timothy and I'm not finding the verse. But there's a verse that speaks about how the Lord is able to perfect his children as we turn to his word and We don't have time. I'm able to find it. So I won't. We are encouraged this week to draw closer to God, to cast out fear, to be discerning in what we cast out, to protect the fear of God in our hearts and lives. Loved ones, to be busy in the Lord's word, to resort to him, to trust that he will carry us through, to act in faith and leave the rest to God. You know, John spoke in a time when there was, when the Antichrist was busy at work. He's done a lot more, the Antichrist has, Since that time to our day, he'll do a lot more before Jesus comes. It's so important that we cultivate this mature love, that we exercise the love of God, that we are exercised by it. Why? Just so we can escape somehow what will come our way? No. So that we might draw nigh to God. Let him do the rest. God bless his word.